Chapter 5 Sema Most of the histories of the dark portray the Church of Tao as a monolithic, single-minded faith ruling over, and often contending against, a double handful of rebellious city-states. While it is true that the Church was more unified and organized than the city-states, much to its advantage, it was not a single monolithic structure. Records of the period indicate it was a confusing tapestry of smaller saint faiths, usurped local religions, and holy cults of personality. Add to this the wide variety of divided dogmas and outright heresies within the Church of Tao's ranks, and it became obvious why the Inquisitions and the later Crusades were formed. Of course, it should be equally obvious that those Inquisitions and Crusades were infested with the same disputes over dogma, cults of personality, and outright heresies as the rest of the Church hierarchy. Arkal, Argivian Scholar Joda found his way back to the Alamar River and began following it south toward the Great Bridge. He considered heading north, far from the madness of the warring city-states, particularly since his wounded leg was feeling better, but the need to find Vasco was too great. He moved quietly, keeping the languid flow of the river to his right as he moved south during the morning and afternoon, finding shade in the heat of the day. He used a spell of light sparingly to light fires in the evening and once to stun a river rat long enough for him to catch it for supper he found he developed greater strength and control over the light as he repeated the process of casting the spell. Yet his achievements would mean little if he could not reach Al-Sur. He was hampered by the fact that he did not know who, if anyone, was winning the war. He met no one along the riverside, but found a large amount of abandoned equipment, enough to deck himself in Al-Surian garb and still carry the fragments of his ged armor in his backpack. He also found among the castoffs a bottle made of carved crystal filled with rum. Regardless of who controlled the bridge, he would be prepared. In the end, it did not matter. When he arrived at the bridge on a gray, overcast morning, all sewer forces controlled the northern end of the Great Bridge and Ged forces the southern. Neither seemed particularly pleased about the presence of the other, but there seemed to be a lack of unsheathed weapons, and traffic moved effortlessly from one side of the bridge to the other. Indeed, a large caravan was encamped on the far side of the bridge in Ged territory. Joda stopped an officer who was bringing up fresh horses and asked what had happened in his absence. War is over, said the stableman. Church negotiated a peace treaty between the two after the battle of Pitdown. Stragglers like you have been coming in for about a week now. You were there? I'm afraid I was, said Joda. The officer sucked on his teeth and said, I heard it was bad. Bad enough, said Joda. So one can travel to Al-Sur then? One can, said the officer. But unless one feels camping outside the city walls, one shouldn't. Joda raised a tired eyebrow at the other man. The plague flag flies over Alsur, said the ostler. Like it did earlier over Ged. The cold grip, or something like that, this time. Nasty bit of work, I hear. Your stomach freezes in a solid lump, as I understand, and you died trying to pass it out of your body. The older man shook his head sagely at the encampment on the far side of the river. That's why the slot is heading south to Ged. Can't say I blame them. Joda raised his head and poked a chin in the general direction of the encampment. And who are this lot? The stable man leaned forward in a conspiratorial fashion. Churchmen, he said simply. The church? Joda blinked. Since when does the church leave a city? Even one with a cold grip. Part of the treaty, I hear, said the stableman. They have a carsload of heretics, wizards, and sinners that they're going to burn in Ged. I see, 
said Joda, thinking at once of Bosca. Would he be among the prisoners? They're going to tie them to the stakes and set them on fire the first morning they get there. Burn them alive, said the officer with a grin. Sort of a welcome to the neighborhood party. He broke down on a wheezing laugh. Charming, said Joda. And they're heading for Ged? Indeed they are, good sir, said the stableman. Indeed they are. Jodo let the stableman go about his business and paused only to change out of the tattered remains of his Alsurian uniform and into the tattered remains of his Ged armor. The Alsur guards sneered at him, but let him pass. The Ged guards, on the other hand, challenged him as he approached. He gave his assumed name and his former unit. The commander of the bridge guards checked a large board. You are a survivor of Pitdown? He asked in a nasal brain. That's what they call it, I suppose, said Joda, trying to remain professional. His eyes swept the church encampment. Could he find a way to join the caravan south? Should he? That was over a week ago, said the commander, an accusing whine in his voice. I was separated from my unit, said Joda, and shrugged. I didn't have a map with me. The commander made a smith of sort and hooked a thumb toward the encampment. Join up with the church card. They'll be escorting her grace from Mata Delphine and the holy prisoners to Ged. Then, you'll be reassigned once you get there, or discharge. War's over, you might have heard. Joda stared at the bridge guard commander in disbelief. Is there a problem, soldier? said the commander, his wine growing indigent. Joda snapped back to reality. No, sir. Thank you, sir. Gathering his backpack, Joda made his way to the church encampment. The encampment was nearly packed and ready when he arrived, and was a hive of activity. Joda looked for someone in charge, but without luck. He also looked for where the holy prisoners were, but with similar lack of success. Somebody behind him shouted something, but Joda continued to scan the crowd. There were a number of Ged soldiers, and some of them had a wide eye, slightly terrified visage. Other survivors of Pitdown, he guessed. He wondered if he too had that painfully honest expression on his face. He felt the mirror on the inside of his boot, but did not reach for it. Someone shouted again, but Joda's blood ran cold when he saw Delphine, primata of the Order of St. Sil, being helped onto her horse. Her mount was a huge white gilding set with an ornate, box-like seat that allowed the large woman to sit side-saddle. Despite himself, Joda felt like turning away. Surely his beard and ragged attire would disguise him after all this time. The primata looked up, and for a moment, Joda thought their eyes fought. His blood froze, and his heart dropped into his boots. But the primata's face remained impassive, or at least no more irritated than she normally seemed, and she gave no hint that she recognized Joda. Then, a heavy hand laid on Joda's shoulder, and he jumped three feet in place, twisting to face his assailant as he did so. Togoth backed up three steps, taking his hand off Joda's shoulder as he did so. Did the battle leave you deaf, man? I called you, and you seem lost in your own little world. Tell's book, it is good to see you survive the battle. Joda took a deep breath and tried to calm his thundering heart. Togoth had called him by his assumed name, the one he had enlisted under, and he had ignored it. I'm afraid I've wandered a long time to get here, he said. You and I both, said Togoth, then lowered his voice. Though, there should be a few more boring jobs in guarding Our Lady of the Overstuffed Sweatbag. At least we deserve the rest, eh? Joda smiled and was rewarded with another slap on the back. At last, the company formed up. Joda and Togoth's group was assigned to the rear guard, which meant that the rest of the procession had to pass before them. 
First came the vanguard, the fresh troops sent from Ged. Their lamella armor waxed as lustrous black, and their freshly laundered tunics as green as a sun-dabbled forest. Then came the outriders, similarly outfitted and colorful. Then, the premodest horse, followed by a number of lesser church officials, either mounted on horseback or in personal carriages. Then, a lumbering wagon, which Togoth mentioned, contained either the church treasury from Al-Sur, or several thousand copies of the Book of Tau, or both. Then, another unit of footmen, this group more ragged and practical-looking than the vanguard. Then came several wagons, holding the holy prisoners, then Joda's units in the rear guard. The wagons holding the prisoners were only a little larger than the donkey carts that hauled Mother Dobbs away. They were stuffed with prisoners who were manacled and hobbled, and the manacles of a few were tied to the railing of the wagon. They were an uninspiring group. If the church was to be judged on the strength of those who opposed it, there was little that could be said on its behalf. Indeed, it looked as if the church had emptied Alsur's gales and dungeons in order to provide a sufficient stock of sacrifices. Togoth could note, but did not, that the prisoners were examples of the enemies of the church in the way poverty, dirtiness, sickness, and famine were considered enemies, for they were all examples of those traits. Jodas scanned the prisoners, looking for Vasca's face, then goggled in surprise. At the prow of the third wagon, her wrist manacle and ornate chains, was the blue-clad woman from the alley. Her garb was tattered prison gray now, but her heart-shaped face and bangs were unmistakable. Jodas stared at her. She turned slightly, and her eyes met Jodas. As with the Primata earlier, he got the feeling that she saw him looking at her, but this time, there was the feeling that she recognized him. Her head bobbed just a bit, and she allowed herself a small smile, and she turned back to face the direction of the procession. The last of the prisoner wagons rumbled on. There was no sign of Vasca among the prisoners. Togoth elbowed Joda and said it was their turn, and they collected in the back of the band with the other shadowing dressed survivors of Pit Down bringing up the rear. It had taken little effort to volunteer both himself and Togoth for guard duty, except perhaps Togoth's unwillingness to get only half a night's sleep after marching all day. It took a bit more persuasion and the salvaged bottle of rum to guard one particular prisoner. Most of the sinners, criminals, and near duels scheduled for the Inquisition pyre were put into one large tent for the evening. Those who might provide particular problems were given their own quarters and their own guards. So it was that Togoth and Joda ended up in the early hours relieving the guards of the Blue Woman's tent. Joda noted that the church was much more serious about its prisoners than the Ged military was. Two guards were posted at each tent and told in no uncertain terms to keep all outsiders out until relieved. Joda waited until most of the guards were changed throughout the camp, and the area began to settle down. Then he said, I'm going to go into the tent, Togoth. I want you to stay here. There was a silence for a moment. Then Togoth said, So, that's what this is all about. Joda looked at the larger man quizzically. Togoth shook his head. After all this effort for a bit of fluff, can't you wait until you get back to Ged? I know of a very good house in the Ducks District. Joda understood what the guard was saying and shook his head violently. He could feel the blood rush into his face in embarrassment. That's not what I meant. I need to talk to the prisoner. Togoth blew out his cheeks in a derisive snap. Yeah, that's what I always said too. I just wanted to talk. Never ends up that way though. Joda felt his face grow hot. I'm serious. I'm looking for somebody. So are we all, lad. So are we all, said Togoth, then gave Joda a long, steely look. Go on, then. 
I don't think the church will care, and she will be kindling in another day. I'm going to move off a little here, and keep lookout for the watch commander. Just keep it down if you don't mind. Jetta wanted to argue with the other guard, but instead just shook his head and unbuttoned the tent flap. As he slipped in, Togoth gave one last shout. And don't take too long. I think I might need to take a good long talk as well in a couple of hours. He punctuated the remark with a nasty laugh. There were supplies in the tent, shoved against one wall, with a cleared space in the middle. In the center was a great iron peg, driven into the rocky soil, and a short chain linked the peg to the prisoner's manacles. It was similar to the method that the Gen military had used to keep their captured spy, but the iron peg, the chain, and the manacles themselves were inscribed with a spider-like tracery of thin silver lines. Similar, Joda noted, to the manacles that bound Bosca. It's about time you got here, said the blue woman, now dressed in gray. Joda scowled a hand up, palm down, motioned for her to lower her voice. He didn't trust Togoth to not stand by the tent flap and listen to what was going on. I need some information, Joda said in a level tone. The woman raised her cross and bound hands. What? No rescue? And here I thought you'd come to free me. She shook her head, and her hair swept across her face like waves. Sorry I didn't contact you sooner, Joda of Giva Province. I had been a little busy. There was not a hint of apology in her voice. I want to know about Vasca, said Joda, kneeling down her opposite, figuring how long the chain truly was, and staying outside her range. The woman held up her wrist again. Free me first. Joda shook his head. Information first. You left me puking in an alley last time we talked. The woman's eyes narrowed, and for a moment, it felt as if she was trying to carve her way into Joda's soul. He sat there, unmoving, waiting for her to make her decision. At length, she licked her lips, shut her eyes, and said, Fosca is dead. I'm sorry. Her shoulders slumped slightly forward as she said it. That did sound like an apology. The bottom dropped out of Joda's stomach at her words, and he felt dizzy for a moment, a repeat feeling he had in that alleyway. It was not magic that brought on the vertigo, but fear. Fear that the woman was speaking the truth. No, he said at last in a whisper. He should have gone back to Alsur sooner. He should have gone back to Alsur immediately after he escaped that city. He should have never left Bosca behind. He never should have split up from Bosca in the first place. He never should have cast the spell, the spell that brought the church and the goblins. I am sorry, said the woman, raising her cross wrist again. But we don't have time for this. You have to get me loose. Joda shook his head again, but there was no sound for the moment. Finally, he managed. How? How did he? The woman settled back on her haunches, and her face was a combination of concern and impatience. That doesn't matter. No. I'm sorry. It does. Short version is all I know. They apparently caught him soon after you got away. He put up a fight. They shot him with crossbows. That's what I put together after they caught me. No, said Joda firmly. We captured a spy from Alsur. He said that Bosco was alive, that the church had him. The church put out that information, said the woman quickly. They were hoping you would hear and come back to rescue him. She paused a moment, then added, they caught me when I came looking instead. There was a long silence in the tent. Joda's face felt flushed, but not from embarrassment. Bosco was dead, and it was his fault. The woman waited for a moment. Then a low, stern voice said, You understand what happened. They put out a false rumor 
in hopes of getting you to come back. They wanted you. I think they still do, from the questions they asked. She held out her wrist a third time. Can we go now? Judah blinked back the witness at the corners of his eyes. Could he trust this woman? Was Fosca really dead? Or was she just telling him her own story to get him to free her? He looked into her cold, blue eyes and saw that she was serious, and there were a dozen other stories she could have told instead. Fosca was dead, and the church was still looking for him. He looked at the manacles. I don't have the key, he said. I don't know. I mean, I can't. He stammered. The woman sighed impatiently. Of course you can. I can't, but they are welded onto me. If I try, the feedback will overwhelm me. You can. Just open them with a spell. Joda looked at the manacles carefully now. They had a thin joining line along one side, but no sign of a locker catch. I don't know, said Joda in a small voice. I don't know that spell. So make it up, hissed the woman. What's your color? Joda looked at the manacled woman with disbelief. My what? Your color. The woman strove to keep her words to a whisper, but it seemed a losing battle. I don't believe that Fosca never... Okay, we'll take it from the beginning. What spells do you know? I can make bright lights appear. Bright, hot light. And I take it that's where you got away from the Primata in the first place, said the woman. Apparently, that puts a real wrinkle in her wimple. What else? I can make potions with the right material, he continued, then spread his hands out wide. You know that as well. I haven't been doing this very long. I can see that, said the woman, with a bit of ice in her voice. Joda looked in her eyes and thought he saw gears turning as she strove to figure out what to do next. At length, she said, When you cast a spell, what do you think of? Think of, said Joda, then realized what she was saying. I think of my home, where I grew up, in Giva. Mountains? Plains? Seacoast? prompted the woman. There were mountains in the distance said Joda. But it was mostly farmland, orchards, vineyards, gardens. Plains, then, said the woman. That fits with the curative magic and the light balls. All right, here's what we can do. I want you to pull out the magic of your land. You know how to do that. Joda nodded and closed his eyes. He was back in Giva, back at the family manse. Slowly, he pulled the energies from those memories and shaped them into a glowing white ball in his mind. Good, said the woman. What are you envisioning? I am thinking of a white ball of light, said Joda. That ball is the mana, the magical energy, said the woman. Now, I want you to keep thinking of that ball and open your eyes. Joda did so. Now, I'm going to tell you to shape that mana. I can't be 100% accurate because it can't really be put into words. Like writing down a dance said Joda, feeling a fresh twinge of regret for Vasca. The woman almost smiled. Almost. Close enough. Now I want you to shape the ball into a disc. Flatten the poles and imagine the edges of the disc so narrow that it can easily fit into a seam of these manacles. Can you do that? I can try, said Joda, flattening the ball in his mind. Then he asked, Have you ever done this before? Made a spell on the fly, asked the woman. Yes. One time, I had a duel with another mage who had his hands trapped like mine. Did it work? said Joda, 
the disc of mana was a spinning vortex, and he imagined it moving toward the manacles. Sort of, said the woman. He casts spells one-handed now. Easy. Just let the disc slide into the joint and move along the length of the manacles. Yes, that's it. Togath had wandered a few feet away initially, but curiosity had gotten the better of him. By the time he was back into hearing distance, the voices were soft and indistinct. Maybe the lad had been telling the truth, thought the older guard. Maybe he just wanted to talk to the woman. Waste of an opportunity, he thought, but every man has his own desires. The soft murmuring went on for a few moments, and there was the flickering of light within. Indistinct shadows formed on the walls. The murmuring voices stopped. The lad was getting careless now, thought Togoth. One thing to leave one's post for a bit of personal excitement. Quite another to light a lantern and call attention to the matter. He'd better stop Joda before he roused the whole camp with his foolishness. Besides, Togoth thought with a grin, it was his turn. The large guard pulled back the tent flap and said, Lad, I hate to interrupt, but if you had your fun... His words died in his throat, and he saw the pair kneeling on the dirt floor of the tent. The woman's manacles were laying to one side, and she was rubbing her wrist. Both the lad and the woman looked up at once. They had the look rabbits get when you surprise them. Then, the woman raised one hand and balled it into a fist. Togoth felt something warm and wet spread over the front of his brain. Then, the woman pulled her fist toward her, and the wet something seemed to be pulled through the front of his skull. It was as if she had dug a fish hook into his brain and just pulled. It happened very quickly. Togoth managed to say, What the? before slamming into the soft earth. What did you do to him? said Joda sharply. A spell of amnesia, said the woman in a matter-of-fact manner. He'll wake up in an hour with no memory of having seen us. We'll be gone by then. Gone? said Joda. Gone, repeated the woman. We're going to put as much distance as we can between us and this camp. I know of a safe place we can hide, and then I can take a ship west. The woman started for the tent opening, but Joda remained still. No, he said. The woman blinked, then her eyes narrowed. What do you mean, no? I mean, there are others who are prisoners here, said Joda. Prisoners of the church. We have to free them too. Free them too? The woman choked on her voice. Are you insane? Insane enough to try to free you, said Joda, his voice stern and level. The woman's face tightened. I could leave you here. Joda nodded. You could, but you said the Primata's trap caught you when you went looking for Vasca. You went after Vasca for a reason. I think that same reason will keep you from abandoning me now. The formerly blue woman balled one hand into a fist and stomped the ground. She looked as if she was going to curse, but instead, she said, How do you want to do this? Joda breathed a sigh of relief. Are there any other spellcasters in the group? Real wizards like you and me? Questioned the woman. Most of them are just penny anti-alchemists and fortune tellers. One or two scholars are guilty of just asking the wrong questions. There's one who claimed to be a necromancer, but he's just crazy. He's probably also the one who can really cast spells. Go get him first then, said Joda, and try to free as many of the others as you can. I'll make a distraction on the other side of the camp. Can you use your induced vomiting spell? Induced vo- said the woman, then almost smiled. Almost. You mean the unbalancing, the one I used in the alley, 
Yes, I could use that spell, but I can't do it all that often. We could use it to clear the way out here. Good, said Joda. Wait 15 minutes after I leave, then get to work. The horses are staked just west of here, on the side of the hill. Meet me there. Fine, said the woman, clearly uneasy. You have any weapon I can use? I could take your friend's sword, but that would likely attract too much attention. Joda reached down on his boot and pulled out his dagger and vossed his mirror. The woman took the dagger, but her eyes locked on the mirror. Hold on to that, she said simply, nodding to the mirror. It will probably be useful. Joda headed to the tent flap and paused to look at Togoth, sprawled out on the floor of the tent. It's better to leave him inside than out, said the woman, seeming to read Joda's thoughts. If we succeed, there's going to be too much confusion for anyone to think of questioning him. And if we fail... She let her voice trail for a moment. You really want to do this? You don't know these people. Joda snorted. I didn't even know your name, and I helped you. The woman straightened, stung by Joda's words. Then she said, Seema, I am Seema of the City of Shadows. And don't worry, you can count on me to do my job. I'll free the other prisoners and be along presently. Joda looked at the woman, nodded, and was gone. Slowly, Joda moved through the camp, weeping slightly, looking like nothing more than a slightly inebriated soldier, returning from a season of gambling in one of the tents. He moved carefully through the various units, taking note of which troops were where. They were all within Ged territory, and except for the guards on the prisoners, there were a few pickets. The great wagon filled with books and or treasure was packed near a great white tent. Earlier in the evening, the tent had been illuminated from within with a pale light, but now it was dark, and the guards nodded off at the doorway. Joda looked up to the overcast sky, took a deep breath, and conjured the memories of the land. He took the memory energies the man of the woman spoke of, and concentrated them into little seeds, each seed no longer than his thumbnail. He kept the memories alive as he moved around the perimeter of the great tent, dropping a seed to the ground, then stepping on it, then moving on. No one seemed to notice him as he did so. The memories grew hot in his mind, and started to burn, to sear the edges of his imagination, like hot coals dropped onto velvet. He had never held the memories, caught upon the power without using them, for this long before. As the back of his mind grew warmer, he wondered how badly he could hurt himself casting spells. He finished his orbit of the command tent and wandered down the wagon. His mind was aflame now, and he thought he could smell ammonia in the back of his nose. A husky shape, another guard, loomed up out of the darkness. You are out of quarters, said the soldier. Report at once to... There were some shouts far away, coming from the prisoner's tent. The soldier looked towards the shouts, and his hand drifted up to his sword. That's when Joda released the power of the mana seeds he had planted. Light erupted in the glowing fountains around the command tent and the wagon, sparking upward like hot, white fireworks set in the ground. The soldier who had accosted Joda had been directed above one and now clawed at his face as small embers of light glowed brightly in his beard. The command tent was already smoldering from the heat, and there were shouts from within. A few feet away, the first tongues of flame licked the underbelly of the wagon. Books, thought Joda, as the flame spread into the wagon itself. It was carrying books, not treasure. The casting had exhausted him, and Joda now just wanted to curl up and sleep. But the camp was up and swarming like an overturned beehive. Instead, he ran for the center of the camp. There were screams and shouts around him, and orders barked as the commander sought to protect the churchmen, extinguish the fire, 
and chased the prisoners all at once. Joda took a deep breath and bellowed, Goblins! We're under attack! Goblins! And rushed toward the perimeter of the camp. Several of the would-be firefighters charged out into the darkness as well, ready to engage an imaginary enemy. Joda circled around, his breath ragged and hoarse in his ears. Twice, he passed small squads heading out into the night, seeking to find the supposed enemy. Others had quickly picked up his cry, and soldiers were now hopping out of their quarters, half-dressed, but looking for the goblins. Joda headed through the confusion for the prisoner tents. A pack of prisoners, still manacled together, but unhobbled, lurched into view, then froze at the sight of him. Joda pointed away, a direction out of camp, and the prisoners, like some multi-legged monster, shuffled quickly out of sight. Joda smiled grimly. Apparently, he could count the woman named Sima to do her job. There was the sound of swords striking each other in the distance, and Joda wondered if some of the prisoners had armed themselves. Instead, he briefly caught a grim tableau, a unit of soldiers locked in battle with what looked like animated skeletons. The skeletons fought silently, their long curved blades drawing blood from their assailants with every strike. The soldiers' blows chopped off hunks of bone, but the skeletons would not stop attacking until they had been totally dismembered. The supposed necromancer, Joda realized, apparently he had the ability to cast spells after all. Joda felt empty, exhausted, but clutched onto Vaska's mirror as a talisman while he moved through the camp. The various unit commanders were regaining control of their troops. Regardless of the situation, the prisoners had only minutes to make good their escape. Finally, he reached the paddock on the hillside overlooking the camp where the horses had been staked. Most of the guards had been called back into the camp, and the horses, smoking their nostrils, were pawing the earth and pulling at their tie ropes. Joda stopped and took a deep breath. Sima came loping up the hill, breathing hard, her face as haggard and exhausted as Joda felt. She turned slightly, waving at the pandemonium in the camp beneath them. Happy now, she said. Joda nodded and said, Now we can leave, milady. I think not, said another voice, stepping out from behind the horses. Aiding in sorcerers is a sin and a crime. Your journey ends here, my children. Joda looked up and saw the massive form of Primata Delphine emerge from the shadows. The big woman was sweating profusely, and Joda knew that she had probably run here as well, hot on their heels. The light of Tao illuminates all, said the priestess. When the attack came, my first concern was the books, but they are already lost. Then I realized that any attacker would likely think of gathering the horses. The wisdom of Tao led me to you. Joda clutched his sword with one hand, Bosca's mirror with the other. He searched his mind, but could not concentrate on the land, could not count on the memories. His mind was exhausted. The pre-model was quoting scripture now. Bathed in the hollow light, the infidels looked upon the impurities of their souls and despaired. As she spoke, her form began to glow, first like a tent lit from within, and then bright enough to bathe the entire hillside in near daylight. The horses, with the exception of the Primata's own ivory-shaded mount, thundered their hooves against the ground and tried to uproot their stakes. Joda turned to Sima and said, Can you do that unbalancing? But the question died in his throat. The woman from the City of Shadows was already doubled over, clutching at her belly, her face worn and white in the luminous glow of the priestess. She is unworthy of Tao's beneficent light, said Primata Delphine. As are you. Again she quoted scripture. 
and I will take a sword to the infidel and the unbeliever, and my blade shall shine with the fire of righteousness. The primata raised a hand, and the air seemed to coalesce into a flaming sword in that hand. That was enough for the horses. Wide-eyed and foam-mouthed, they tipped the ropes from the earth and were gone into the darkness, running all directions. The only one unfazed was the white gelding, Delphine's mount. Primata Delphine, pointing the flaming blade at Joda, and white hot fire leapt from the tip, arching toward him. Joda reached into his mind and found nothing. No memory, no ready spell, only a regret that he would never see his family's manor again. Instinctively, he threw up his hands to ward off the blow, the mirror and the blade striking each other as he did so. The flame from the priestess's sword struck the cross mirror and sword, hesitated for a second, and then doubled back, leaving Joda unharmed. The holy fire struck the primata in the chest, and her robes now glowed of a new radiance, of the crimson flame of burning cloth. The primata screamed, and her flaming blade disappeared, and she dropped to the ground, rolling to extinguish the blaze, the slope carrying her down the hill. Joda lowered his arms, and then looked at the blade and the mirror. The mirror was magical after all, and had the power to turn the church's work against it. He gripped his sword, and began to chase down the hillside after the smoldering form of the priestess. He got no more than ten feet when he saw a line of human shapes in black and green armor coming up the slope. They scattered as the flaming priestess rolled down among them, then, realizing who was on fire, chased after her. Cursing, Joda climbed up back the hill where the primata's gelding still stood, nibbling at the grass. Joda grabbed Seema's shoulder and dragged her to her feet. He half led, half shoved her toward the primata's horse. The horse was laconic as Joda hoisted the other spellcaster onto its back. The activity was enough to rouse her fully, and Seema pulled him up behind her. From horseback, they looked down on the camp. There were a number of fires within the camp now, but it seemed that matters were slowly being brought under control. The collection of green and black figures had stopped the tumbling fireball that was the Primata Delphine, and half the force remained with her while the rest of the soldiers were working their way up the hillside toward them. Time to leave, good lady Seema, Joda said, and he jammed his heels into the flanks of the horse. The gelding leapt forward, both Joda and his companion hanging onto its mane for dear life. Direction did not matter to Joda as much as distance. Exhausted and hungry, they rode into the early morning hours when the eastern sky shone red with the promise of a sunrise that never seemed to come. Only then did they halt enough to let the horse water. Where are we going now? she asked. Joda shook his head. I don't know. I stayed here because Vaska. His voice died. I don't know if I could go home either. The woman nodded sternly. Then come with me. There is a safe house we use south of here. I could use your help in reaching it, and you need some real training in magic. Joda turned over the woman's words in his mind, looking for some slight against Vaska's training. It was there, he realized, but he decided it was better to ignore it. At length, he said, I think it would be best, after all. Good for that, at least. He felt chilled to the bone as he staggered out of the square, heading the direction that the goblins had originally come from. Only later, once he had built a fire in one of the outlying buildings and dried off, did he realize that his leg was no longer hurt and the wound had closed up entirely.